When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog. This episode of The Need to Fail is brought to you by Hypocrisy. Some folks are telling the government, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I want a haircut and I'm not going to wear a mask. This is my First Amendment right. And then telling other folks, hey, you better listen to the government. They got a curfew in place, okay? Obey the law. All right, fuck your First Amendment. Hypocrisy. More like hypocrisy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Need to Fail. My name is Don Finelli. I run this thing. I hope everyone is safe and well that is listening to this. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think we all need to feel uncomfortable and angry for a while to really motivate change in this country and, uh, you know, feel all the feelings. I'm trying to approach everything from a place of empathy. I'm trying to listen and learn as much as I can and finally have uh, the difficult conversations with people that are close to me, specifically that disagree with me on aspects of this movement. And I'm, you know, keep hearing about getting things back to normal and the good old days and all that shit. But it's, we have to acknowledge that there are many people out there that don't have good old days and they don't know, quote unquote, when things were normal. And if we want to have peace in this country and all that good stuff, we got to fight for justice and we have to fight for accountability and transparency as well and uphold constitutional rights, uh, not just when they uh, conveniently serve the majority. I had a uh, epic text chain dispute with <laughs> three of my close friends all last week, man, I was bombarded with facts from the other side. You know what I mean? All the counterpoints, all the nitpicking, all that stuff. And um, they're very defensive. They're very angry. Uh, I did my best to kind of fill them in on how people are feeling on this side of things and try to get them to empathize with people that are struggling to take the fucking data out of it for one second to realize the data is skewed in a way. It's part of a system that is flawed. It is being reported by people that don't want it to be reported. So that's, uh, you know, shady as fuck. And just realize that Americans are hurting. And yeah, technically all lives do matter, but it's not about yours. It's not about mine right now. Uh, this is about uh, specific folks that are really hurting and and we have to and we have to help them out and we have to support them if we if that's what being a true fucking american is to you you know what i mean we can't keep cherry picking facts and data and constitutional rights only when they work for us uh or else we'll just be fucking hypocrites constantly which we are anyway i think humans are just natural we don't want to look foolish we double down on our arguments all the time even when, like, in the back of our head, we're like, eh, it doesn't feel right. One of them sent me, uh, oh boy, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Heather McDonald, who, I don't know if you know, is a super conservative academic author. It's a white lady who went to Yale, Cambridge, Stanford, 
you know, she put a book out called The Diversity Delusion, which I read the first 50 pages of. That's a whole other podcast. We can talk about that. But this article that she wrote was entitled The Myth of Systemic Police Racism. So I read through his pretty short article, and then I spent like, I don't know, six or seven fucking hours researching the studies that she linked to, all two, uh, but they were very long. And uh, I, I tried to find that she kind of brazenly the mentioned this other stat, but she didn't link to it. So I found this like paper online that I think she was talking about. And, and then I wrote like a six page response <laughs> to my friends just calling her out on her cherry picked facts. Like a lot of the actual facts, there are conclusive facts that some of these studies find that it is easy to kind of pick out and, and throw out um, at more progressive folks. But all three of these very lengthy studies that I read do mention not once, but multiple times how the data is tricky to say the least because it's cops that are reporting all this. And if you want to just last week, we've seen evidence of police statements contradicting video evidence. So how fucking long has this been going on? So there's that. But there's just so much more data around cherry-picked facts that either help explain things or confirm that maybe accountability and transparency are actually working. Uh, one of the studies was 188 pages that I went through. It was by the Department of Justice about the Philadelphia Police Department in 2015 about officer-involved shootings specifically. So again, she's pulling something from one study of one city in one year, and she pulls one statistic in a subset of data that black and Hispanic cops are more likely to shoot unarmed black suspects than white cops. Okay, and that's like one of her big things in her article. Um, and that, it does check out percentage-wise. But the the article that she the other article that she linked to to prove one of her other fucking main stats actually explains why that is the case of course she probably didn't read any of these things uh these are very long and nuanced studies but it says that black and hispanic officers tend to serve in communities that they either came from or other black and hispanic communities and right now those tend to have more violent crimes in them. Hence, maybe the uptick in numbers, the higher percentage. The number was 10, by the way. The percentages were higher because there was like a 100 less cases of black and Hispanic officers in, in such a situation. Um, anyway, it's just, I can't stand some cherry picking. And Oh, I found a statistic that works for me and brazenly throw it in this article. And now we're checking off a box for everyone that reads in their head, their confirmation biases are correct. I mean, there's so many counterfacts I could have cherry-picked and thrown back at her. Uh, how white unarmed suspects are seven times more likely to be killed by suicide by cop, which means they wanted to be killed. So uh, they'll do something to provoke the cop to shoot them, pretend they have a gun, weapon, etc. How white officers only accidentally shot black suspects and no other race in Philadelphia and black cops shot zero sus uh, white suspects, by the way. And then she wrote like only nine unarmed black men were killed last year. Again, nine too many in my humble opinion, but that's compared to 19 white men. Again, the seven times more likely suicide by cop thing is played into that. They're three times more likely to have mental health issues. So she's like, well, you know, only nine people were killed 
uh, unarmed last year, black people were killed. That's down from 30 or 40, whatever it was in 2015. And I'm like, well, maybe do you think the black lives matter movement that started a year or two before might've actually been working to decrease the number of unarmed citizens being killed by cops? Like Jesus Christ, come on. This is one article out of a sea of articles you know, in a sea of talking heads. And it's just riddled with just little cherry picking facts, little hypocrisies, not giving you the complete data. And uh, people just find what they're fucking looking for. And then they give up, man. We're lazy as hell. I'm lazy as hell. I mean, nobody should have to do the amount of research that I did to get to the whole truth on something. That's fucking reporters are for. But everything moves so fast. No one has time for the fucking nuanced data. It's just very easy to sit, very, you know, removed from the situation, look at statistics, not check sources or understand the depth of the situation. And everything's not black and white, man. There's there's multiple layers behind all of these things. Uh, there are a lot of fears going on, and we have to really look those in the face and address those and change the system. We got to change the system to protect everybody. Uh, citizens, law enforcement, we have to change the system. Um, but that is just my privileged fucking opinion. Uh, I don't think the move is to uh, tell someone how they should feel or what they should believe in. I don't think those work. They ultimately, you know, people I think have to come to the conclusions themselves. Uh, so we have to have empathy to guide them there and address their fears. Uh, there are some great resources out there. Keep checking those out. Uh, donate online. Um, There's a ton of stuff that we can do to help uh, keep supporting uh, folks and and keep educating ourselves and others and keep looking at ourselves in the mirror, man. We got to, we're, we're racist. We have privileges. We have confirmation biases. We're hypocrites. Let's just do some fucking work to fix ourselves. Like we got to admit all this shit before we can fix ourselves. Right. I was egotistical enough when I was younger to set out to change the fucking world. Motherfucker. I need to start with myself. All right. Let's get to the show. Got one of my best buds on today, Michael Cruz Kane. You've seen him do stand-up on Late Night with Seth Meyers. He's been on High Maintenance, The Chris Gethard Show. He was a creative consultant for Billy on the Street. His web series, Terrible Babysitters, was a part of South by Southwest comedy lineup. Host of the constantly sold-out monthly show, The Exhibition in New York. UCB stalwart, he's doing ASCAT, What I Did for Love, Baby Wants Candy. He started the diversity initiative at UCB that I was happy to be a part of. It was called the Ally Program. Uh, I've known Kane for, fuck, over 10 years, man. He's one of the funniest, probably the smartest person I know. Laura and I were talking about, I was like, if we ever went on to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, he'd be the person we'd bring with us. Uh, aced his fucking SATs. He's like the highest level of tutor you can get. People fly him out to like Abu Dhabi to tutor Sheik's kids. Anyway, he's got a whole separate life there. But we met in a Gethard class. That was a game changer for us. He put together a group which would become uh, an indie team called Dreadnought, which did, let's say, very experimental shows. Uh, This was a group that did a show in a sushi restaurant that was very controversial to people that weren't there. Uh, We did a show in a Best Buy and then went down Broadway uh, with folks following us, watching us until we kind of continued the show at an already going on show at Under St. Mark's. Uh, Gethard used to coach that team for free in a fucking drippy basement of the Triple Crown. Uh, then Kane and I were put on our first Harold team together, uh, the opera. We were later put on the Harold team, still Mike together. Uh, we were, uh, put together a three on three team called Sabonis. 
Um, that our third member was a swing member, but it was first Anthony King, then Chris Gethard, then Connor Ratliff. We wound up winning the annual three on three tournament three times. Uh, we've done a lot of comedy together over the years. Uh, but Laura and I have also hung out with uh, the Kane family over the years. We really look up to them as parents. They're fantastic parents. And uh, if you did not know, Mike went through a horrible tragedy. He lost his son about 10 years ago, about a month after he was born. Um, he recently tweeted about it, which kind of sparked a, a bunch of others uh, coming out and talking about their grief. I awkwardly bring it up. Uh, later in the convo, I quickly make it about me. There's some top-notch interviewing skills going on here. I can't believe I'm ending this podcast. This is Peabody Award-winning stuff here, folks, whatever that fucking award is. Uh, anyway, we talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, it was so great to catch up with them. I say we get to it. Here he is, Michael Cruz Kane. How about this? Let's start with this. Uh, you're uh, really smart. You're really funny. Uh, no way have you ever failed, right? <laughs> well, gotta, I got to tell you, buddy, that's very that's very wrong. <laughs> uh, I mean, going going all the way back, I think I was like a I was a, I was a failure by every metric for a, a while. <laughs> How I so? Guess that's not true. I was, no way, man. Was you kid, you like aced your fucking SATs. You know, are you tired of people bringing that up, by the way? Yeah, I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I When I was a kid, I was like a big time loser. I was like smart. So I would like, you know, but I had no friends. Really? I had like basically no friends. I had like, like pe- kids. I had kids come into my birthday party because they were like, it's a birthday party. Like, of course yeah. we're going to go. <laughs> and we had like at that age, it's like, of yeah. course we're going to go. Um, and like you're playing a lot of chess no chess yet not at that point my mom would set up like elaborate stuff to make my parties really awesome and it would be like really cool we had a haunted house once for one of my birthdays because my birthday is like the end of september so it was you know halloween ish yeah and we like set up a, a haunted house in my garage that was so scary that I'm probably misremembering this, but one of the kids like was so terrified that he had to go home. <laughs> um, Your mom knows how to throw a party. She goes all the way, bro. She's, She's really not good. Kidding. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, but the first time that I had like friends was from doing theater stuff. Like I started, I for somehow or other became okay at singing. And then I, I was at, uh, was in a boys choir where for whatever reason I was like the man. Like I was, I, I arrived on the scene as like a, you know, a little, a little pup in the boys choir. And I was an alpha dog from jump. I was like bullying. You would get assigned to like an older, uh, chorister yeah. to be like your big brother. I forget what they called it, but I was bullying my, my <laughs> older person like right away. Yeah. In the beginning. Perfect. That guy, by the way, now has served like two, maybe three tours in the infantry in Afghanistan. Good. Like it's, um, so good. in a way, like it was good for him. What I, yeah. I so he used it. Mm-hmm. He used it as motivation yeah. for his life. He yeah. Used it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then I started doing theater and then I was like popular in that world. I had like a bunch of friends doing theater stuff. Yeah. Fast forward, zoom, 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 zoom. I give up. That's the sound. That's fast forwarding, by the way. I don't know if you have. That's like, the, I'm, that's I'm digital. Thing. That's digital baby now. That's we yeah, don't we don't listen gonna, to tape anymore. It's, it's click 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 zoom zoom zoom. Um, 
I, I stopped doing comedy for a while because I was doing um, like test prep, which I still do. Yeah. And you completely uh, stopped comedy because you were teaching people how to take tests. No, that's what I'm saying is that's totally incorrect. I, I said that and it is totally wrong. What is true is that I was doing musicals, talking about failing. I was doing, I was in college at NYU. Yeah. I was like playing lead roles in college mm-hmm. um, and sort of just had that unearned confidence that I was going to be a star like yeah. when I graduated college. You wanted to be on Broadway? You wanted to be in the movies kind of thing? I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted, wanted to be, to be like the lead in a, in a Broadway musical, um, yeah. brag. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, every, everyone, uh, in like, you know, they bring guest speakers into my department and to have mm. to speak to the students. And they would always be like, it's brutal. Look to your right, look to your left, look at yourself. None of you are going to make it. <laughs> it was like that kind of vibe. Yeah. And right after I graduated college, I booked this show called hoops, H O O P Z. Uh-huh. P-Z, in case you didn't have that. There's a Z at the end. It was about the history of the Harlem Globetrotters that the uh, that Disney was producing, uh-huh. uh, that Kenny Leon, I don't know if you know who that is, he's a great director, was uh, directing, and Savion Glover was choreographing it, whoa. which maybe people don't know who that is now, but then that it is. was like, whoa, this, is yeah. like, this guy's hot. Mm-hmm. So I was like, screw all those people who thought, it wasn't going to work out for me. I'm going to be famous. Like probably within like within a week, I'm going to stop talking to all the people that used to be my friends. Like that's, right, that's, right. You know, you'll the, be the next Michael the, Jackson. That's exactly right. In every way, in, <laughs> in, every-, in every, every exact way. <laughs> um, and the, <laughs> the, the show was really, really, it, well, it didn't go well. It, it was, it was basically like stomp with basketballs oh. plus the history of the Globetrotters. Yes. And, Part of the problem was that if you were playing basketball, uh-huh. like if you're doing, if you're in stomp and you like forget they hit the fricking trash can with the broom, yeah. nobody in the audience can tell that you were supposed to. But right. in this thing, if you mess up a dribble of the basketball, it like goes rolling off your foot all the way across the <laughs> stage. And everybody's like, well, this guy, this character sucks at basketball. <laughs> so we did a showing of this thing for, I think Michael Eisner was the guy running Disney yeah. at the time. Crazy. He came to see a, sh- um, a showcase of this. Jesus. Or a workshop or whatever. And it was canceled like very shortly thereafter. <laughs> As it should have been. Amazingly talented people in it. Yeah. Like a lot of really cool music, all this stuff, but it was not good. <laughs> it got canceled. Like very shortly thereafter, I broke my leg and <laughs> lost my voice. <laughs> and, you know, like just trying to be a musical theater actor, man, it is. There, there are people that I know from college who are doing it and like making a living at it, but it is hard. Yeah, because is it plus, is it because of the auditioning and the kind of like um, con- conditioning as well that you have to like maintain? Well, yes, for totally all of that, and then also it's not just you, but it's like I would um, at the time I would work uh, work as strong, but I would act as a reader for auditions a lot for uh, what was then called Bernard Telsey casting. Yeah, hell yeah, I would be sitting in auditions for leads in musicals. Yeah. So if you're there all day watching people audition to be the leads in musicals, right. dude, these people are good. Yeah. They are all so good. The worst person you saw was like, ah, that guy's good. <laughs> right. So then you're like, maybe I'm not good enough to do this. Look at what these people are doing. And so I'm, I'm watching these people come in and just kill, just yeah. crush. And after they leave, 
you know, the director would be like, well, that was, that was painful. And you're like, oh my God, that's the best shit I ever saw in my life. It's the best thing I ever saw in my, I'm like sobbing. So I'm like, I can't do this. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm trying to get to play like, you know, Joseph and Joseph and the amazing Technicolor yeah. Dreamboat in like Ronkonkoma or something. Right. And I'm just like, I don't want to, why am I killing myself to do this? Then I lose my voice and I break my leg. <laughs> How'd you break your leg? And so I broke my leg playing basketball. There you go. Hoops. Every major injury I've sustained in my life. And there have been like, you know, a good amount. Know, six all, yeah. all from playing basketball. Every yeah. single one. Like tore, I tore a ligament in my ankle, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Um, Keep so, playing, baby. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I'm going to, I hurt myself again. Yeah. Don, like. Three weeks, no, like a month ago, I took a, a bar class on Zoom with mm-hmm. a bunch of suburban moms, and I tore a ligament, ligament in my ankle again. All right, so not basketball related. Yeah, but I will go back to playing basketball. <laughs> okay. it's, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> anyway, so I was doing all that, and then I, um, I had to stop everything because I uh, hurt Broke myself. Yeah. Yeah, and so I tried to get I tried to get a side job doing something else, and I started writing test materials for um, a test prep company, and then I started tutoring test prep, and I did that straight for years. Like, it just became a thing that I was weirdly really good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because like a lot of people who tutor are super smart, but maybe not as like I'm like a little bit of an entertainer. Part of my mm-hmm. like the way that I validate myself as a human being is by making other people laugh. So I think maybe other tutors are more secure in themselves as people. <laughs> so they feel less of a need to be a clown. Um, but because of that, why, you are popular with the kiddos. Yeah. The kiddos, the kiddos, the young folks, I think generally like me. Yeah. So I did that for a long time. And then I saw, um, my wife, uh, at the time, my girlfriend had a friend who did like a one oh one or a two oh one show at UCB. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see the show and I was like, wow, this is really fun and good. And my wife's friend's name is Christy mm-hmm. Puzz, Christy Puzz. And she was so funny. She's not doing it anymore. But I saw like really watching her. I was like, this is this is joyful and great. I would like to do it. Yeah. And then I started taking class at UCB um, probably right around the same time you did. Like, yeah. What right, year was right that? 2007, 8? I yeah, don't know. That's when I started around I really there. Yeah. But I know we came up at about the same time. Mm-hmm. and. It was like a hobby for me. Like what I was telling myself was that this is like a side thing that I do while I'm tutoring, which is where I like make money. I'm not like doing, I'm like, I'm doing this on the side. Right. But it's sort of inevitable that it became not a side thing. Right. I like really loved it. You know, time of my life, met a lot of great people. And I was like, for a very long time, someone who was funny, but not good at all, but able to coast a little bit on being funny. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, eventually got kind of good at it. But I was, I mean, I was bad for a long time. We were, we were on a, um, a team together, bef- like on an indie team called yeah. Dreadnought. Yep. Which if there is such a thing as an indie team that, that had a little bit of a rep, I think we were one of them. And it was not a rep for being good at improv. No, That's no not that was, we that was the for. first thing we should tell people. It was not because we were good. Yeah. This is not a brag. It's not a brag about like, wow, we were so amazing that, that people had heard of us. It was more than like we did insane things, almost things that were deliberately bad, perhaps to mask the stuff that mm-hmm. the fact that we would have been accidentally bad otherwise. <laughs> well, we came all yeah. out of that. That was a cool Gethard class. It was his first class teaching again after like a year or so hiatus. And yeah. it was a lot of people I hadn't 
played with or had seen before. I knew Dom a little bit. There was a couple other people that I knew a little bit in that class, but I had never met or seen you before. Catherine, Jesse, Noah. I hadn't seen any of these folks before. Um, and I think, wasn't Nate Russell in that class too? I'm pretty sure Nate Russell was in that class. I hadn't class. seen Nate before yeah. that. You know, we all got put on our first Harold team together, but I hadn't seen like anybody and i was like everybody was so funny and i was like i thought i was like i don't think i was confident or cocky at that point at all uh, i think i was just like I, i'm not good at this but i'm like very determined at this and then in that class um that was a game changer for me to kind of get some more confidence and to really like find because i think you were the person that put dreadnought together i'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I was. I think I st- the class stopped and then I started emailing whoever was in the class. I mean, you know, some people to be like, not just people who are funny, but also people who are like, I think these people would like to do the same kind of shit that I want to do. Right. Because there were there were a lot of funny people in the class who ended up not, I didn't email, but it was like, these are the people in the class who I feel like we, we would vibe. And we did. Like, we loved each other. Yeah. That was a very close-knit group. Oh, yeah. I thought. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, And yeah. Geth was, you know, uh, amazing. Yeah. Like a, like unreal as a teacher. And like, I, that's the, he made you believe in yourself. Even if that wasn't deserved, you, he could trick you into being like, yeah, you actually are. And he's like that as an improviser too, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. you'll do improv with Chris and you'll leave being like, holy shit, I am I'm so funny. pretty good so at that, this. Yeah. <laughs> that had nothing to do. It was him. He made you funny. <laughs> were you saying you were coasting on being funny and then eventually you got good at it? What, like, what's your timeline for that? Were you, are you talking about classes? Well, are you talking would, about, like, even when you got onto teams? Even when I got into teams. So I got yeah. I got onto, I was on Baby Wants Candy before I was on Herald Night, which was, again, for people, hopefully very few people who listen to your podcast know <laughs> anything about, like, musical theater improv history. <laughs> but Baby Wants Candy was like, is it, it still exists, and it's a it's great huge. team, and, like, mm-hmm. tons of really great, funny people, like, have been on that team. Um and I was on that team, I think, you know, because I was also a very confident singer, yeah. particularly relative to other improvisers. Yeah. So, like, I was super confident in that way. I could be really funny in song. I had had Eliza Skinner as a teacher who, if you don't know who that is, is, mm-hmm. like, an amazing. She's, like, now she's a great stand-up. She's a great writer. But at the time, and probably if she tried to today, she was, like, the like the empress of musical improv yes, also. absolutely. But had her as a teacher. Um. And she instilled a lot of confidence in me. So I was on Baby Wants Candy, which, you know, in like the hierarchy of improv things felt pretty high. And Harold felt like a little bit felt lower than that. Yeah. Also, you were like Baby Wants Candy would tour. So it was like this. It wasn't necessarily like used to be Torco, but it was like its own entity that was like I remember auditioning for it being like, I'm not going to get this. But like some of my friends were. So I thought it'd be funny. And I was really bad. But it was like I had. I was so stupid. I think it was in like 401 or something like that. It's probably the same auditions that you got on. I'm guessing. Um, Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Dude, fact check this, please. Um, yeah. yeah. Please. <laughs> please. Uh, heads. What do you call people who would listen to this? Uh, hey, my knees. Yeah. My, my failures. <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, it was a coveted position. Um, it was a kind of long, longish running like thing. 
Yeah, it's been going on forever, and they have um, like they tour, and they had we had like a show in the city that we would do every week. Right, uh, and it was at different theaters from time full to time. Full band, like you know, full of a full band, an amazing, like crazy band. Guys yeah. like playing with Bruce Springsteen and stuff, also playing our improv shows. Yeah, and like the cast when I was there was like Eliza was in the cast, Thomas mm-hmm. Middleditch, a lot of like really amazing, very funny people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, I was still not good. I was kind of funny. I was a great singer. Mm-hmm. Still am amazing. Like kind of blow your <laughs> mind. Like people cry when they hear me sing. <laughs> In the comedy world, I'm a great singer. When I was trying to be a musical theater person, it's like, ah, I'm okay here. Yeah. Um, but I did that. And then uh, it took me a couple times, I think, to get on to Herald Night. And um, so you auditioned. I was, you didn't get on like the first time. I didn't get on the first time. And I remember being insecure about that and sort of like, I might mean, I got on the second time either first. I'm not sure, but I remember being like, you know, it was my scene partner's fault, blah, 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 a bunch <laughs> of like defense mechanisms. They're like where my scene partner was trash, but still like you could be good. Even right. so you could be, you could like listen to them and respond to the things that they say, which I was yeah. not doing. Yeah. I would be like, yeah, well, uh, got a big <laughs> penis or whatever. And I'd be like, was that, is, is that good? I also did that on Herald night. Once I was on the night, that was pro- my, my pr- uh, predominant sense of humor for the first year was just, my dick. Was just wiener jacks. Mm-hmm. My dick. My dick. Um, yeah. That was a little, and, often a little call in, uh, in the opera. Well, my yeah, dick. we were on uh, Don and I, for those who don't know were Don and I were on our first Herald team together, the opera. And it was again, a team with like very funny people on it. Yep. That was bad. It was, a, yeah. I mean, do you feel differently about that? I think it was no. like kind of inarguably a bad team. I think, yeah, I um, think it was, um, I don't think we were good at what we were trying to do. I think we were maybe trying to do a little too much too fast before like great. I always tell people like we were a great team off the court. We like, we got along. Everyone was super nice, super funny. Everyone was a little weird. It was nice. It was like a good, it was a good group of folks. And I think we were told Gethard might've fucked us up a little bit just cause we were told like, Oh, this is the team. Everyone kind of killed their auditions. So we, they put all these people together, whether that's true or not. I don't know. But I remember that first practice Gethard was like, you got a lot to <laughs> live up to here. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, like like has for, so for me, I'm like, like stuff. Yeah. Right. for me, I was like, this is fucking great, but you don't realize like, Oh, other people don't respond to shit like that as well nor yeah, should that you know what totally. i mean so I and mean, i think for me it really wouldn't have meant like anybody could have said anything i was mm. still like bad then i i, I think i was the I same think I, I think me and you both were i remember that first practice and i tell the story sometimes but i think the first scene of the first practice was like laura and mujan did a scene and it was so good and so like it had a game it was clear they were funny they had awesome characters and i remember just like being on the back line, being like, oh, I'm fucked. Like, they, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. I had, I just remember that first scene you know, and just immediately this dread inside of me. Then me and you did a scene about finding gold with our dicks or something like that. It, I, that we seems, stepped out. I don't, to, don't remember that, but that seems right. It was our first warm ups. It was, these were all warm up scenes. So it was just like, Gethry was like, do a bunch of scenes together. First scene, Laura Mujan, kill it. Me and you, maybe the next or two after bad it was a bad scene and we were both like looking at each other like wait this usually works why is it not working right now like why is no one laughing at how silly we are you know what i mean how, yeah, how loud i was yeah how loud i was isn't dicks funny yeah it was uh i just remember that being like the first i don't think i was good either 
I don't I don't think me. I think you were I mean, good. I, a, I don't think we were technically love, technically good. Do you know what I mean? Like we were funny. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I could I think if you were like we need one person to say one funny thing right now, I think I could have done that. Yes. But if it's like we need to sustain an idea that is comedic for 45 seconds, I'd be like I'm going to tap out after about 10. I disagree. I, be- I disagree. I could, and I'll 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 challenge you and say, if you oh, had wow. a character, you could go on forever. Like if you were like, okay, some, if, if you were like a Greek fucking, you know, dude on, on a beach selling sh- seashells, like you could do that for a long time. I think. Hey everybody. This is the B man, old BW from the world record podcast. And I'm here to let you know that me and my co-host, the a train, AKA Hershey Hellman took over office hours live this week. We came into the studio. We made it our own. We wrecked the place. I stole one of Tim Heidecker's guitars. So check out office hours live on your podcast app of your choice or at youtube.com slash office hours live this week and see what happens or go to worldrecordpodcast.com and you can watch the videos or join the patreon patreon.com backslash world record podcast enjoy the show it's okay i appreciate well listen i appreciate that yeah no problem thank you i love you baby i love you too man I had a hard time. Harold Knight was a rough time for me. I never felt like I was on a good team, which I attribute now to myself, but then <laughs> to, you know, a host of factors. <laughs> but it took a long time to be like, you know, maybe you having a bad attitude all the time and also being bad was not helping any of these teams. Or maybe but I met like, was it like you wanting the perfect scenario, but realizing that there technically is no perfect scenario? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, yes, totally. And, but also on top of like I, I had, I was married and had a kid at that time at home. You know what I yeah, mean? Right. So like from every time I would go to practice or go to a show, it's like, Hey babe, I know you can watch the kid. I'll be home in a couple hours. It's like, yes. there's so much pressure on each thing to be good. Cause it's like, I'm making my wife a single mother for right. these few hours when I go and do this. Now and I understand that now five. having a kid, I understand it's part of the reason why maybe I'm stopping this as well. It's to do yeah. something and not feel like the creative either satisfaction or to feel like you're, you don't want anything to feel like a waste of time. If that makes sense. That's right? exactly like, right. You, have to you be don't like want to choose. Your, yes. And it has to feel like either like, either like it's remunerative, right? Like if mm-hmm. I'm making money off it, okay, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Then it's, then it's justified. Or if it's like, I'm making something that is great, then yeah. it's also justified. Yeah. Or if it's like, I'm making something that brings me joy, even if it's not great, then yeah. that's another thing. And my family understands that any- part. You know what I mean? Like if my family understands yeah. like daddy needs to play the piano every now and then inside, you know, like in his room, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I daddy's got to gotta lay face down on the ground, <laughs> turn the lights off, and scream for 20 minutes every day. Daddy needs that. <laughs> That's the thing daddy needs. And I'll say this, remunerative, whatever you just said, great SAT word. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, they've stopped testing vocab on the SAT, but if you travel back in time, you can probably, you'll find that on a, on a sentence completion for sure. Dude, I don't remember anything. I block all that shit out. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I, I know uh, what you mean. Like, you, you were, you, what was, what were you what were you battling back then? So you were feeling that kind of like pull, like if I'm going to do this thing, it better be worth it. You know what I mean? And it better be great. Yeah, you're putting well, that pressure on. 
all every everything that came out of my mouth it was like this had better be good yeah and then on top of that another thing another dynamic is that when i was doing theater and like you know doing regional musical theater or you know whatever mm-hmm. i was often the youngest even like i was young in my class in college like you right. know i had a late birthday mm-hmm. i was always like the youngest person doing everything for a yeah. long time in my life at, at the company where i tutored i was like one of the youngest people there yes Coming to UCB, I was for the first time really ever in my life. I was one of the older people, even though you know, not, like uh, age wise, yeah. Like so, so, all the people who were who were my age mm-hmm. had become teachers or had moved on and had like you know careers in mm-hmm. comedy, right? So there was also an element of comparison there that was uh, that was really frustrating, right? Right. That's like you know, I'm I'm up here with a. 23 year old who doesn't care if this show is bad because they don't doesn't matter it means nothing to them right <laughs> uh, and i was like you know th- which is silly it's the opposite of how it should have been i as a adult man with a family should have been like who cares why are you so fucking wound up in this and a 23 year old should not have perspective but i was the one being like please since Scene's got to be funny. Do it for your family also you liked like, it though like this is something you wanted you wanted to be good at so yes. it, there's this kind and, of like and, yeah and also looking back on it, the it was valuable, right? I didn't mm-hmm. feel valuable, but it was like, however good I am at comedy now, which is a lot of people say like, you know, transcendent or like these are the kind of words that get thrown around. <laughs> it, it comes remunerative. from remunerative is what a lot of people say about my comedy. It, it comes from that time. Like that's when I learned yeah. that, you know, that, that's like how I got, I got, I had to be bad for a while. Yeah. And I think maybe I got on Harold Knight before. No, I don't know. I wasn't ready to be good yet. Like I remember um, mm-hmm. Lennon Parm was my one-on-one teacher. Yeah. And she was so proud of me when I got put on Harold Knight and she came to the first Harold Knight that the opera did. And I was just flat bad. I was like, I, I stepped out, I did the scene with Nate Russell. Mm. Great, funny guy. He came out, he had a strong idea. And I just like, he said, he, I remember what he said, but he said it to me. And I remember being like, well, I'm going to, I'm bad. I can feel myself being bad now. I'm going to say <laughs> something back to you that is loud. Well, is that funny? Um, and that's what I did. I remember seeing Lennon afterwards and Lennon is like one of my favorite people in the world. I, I was just in LA before the universe turned crazy and we visited her and her family. I love her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like walked with her for a few steps and like both like in silence. And she was like, so how did you think that I went? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and that's what it was like, you know, just the nicest possible way of being like, I'm not going to tell you that was good because it would be mean to tell you it was. Uh, I, but I remember, like, I remember that. And I was like that for a long time, just like not being good. And there were other teams like Sandino that, which was, you were eventually on Sandino. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That was like a became a, a just a great team and like played with such joy. Yeah, out of the gates, like, they were they were strong. Doing, I want to be doing. I want to have fun. I want to be doing that. Yeah. So, and then I was on other Harold teams that were also you know bad, but with people whom I loved then and love now, and I'm glad that I met them and who like shaped whatever you know my comedic voice, whether right. it be um, you know coaches or. Other players, like I was on teams with you, Terry Withers, yeah. Adam Frucci, Darcy Carden, like people who like I really respected and were so funny. But I don't think any of those teams were great. Any of those teams were great teams. I wasn't really on a good team yeah. until after I I quit Harold Knight because I was just like, well, one, I wasn't having fun. But two, a lot of the people that I'd grown really close to 
Uh, Darcy got moved to the weekend. I think you and Terry got moved to another team. Yeah. Um, Frucci got moved to another team. I'm not sure if this, you know, how, what the timeline is for all that. But eventually I was on a team with great people, but I was just like, I don't want to make new relationships. <laughs> I don't want to meet one more person. So I quit. And then Nate Dern, who was the artistic director at UCB, put together right. a weekend team, basically. This is what was, I did for love. Called What I Did for Love. Mm-hmm. That was just like out of this world and yeah. was so fun. And it changed my whole perspective on doing improv. It was like me... Um, Abra Tabak, Jameson Guest, who's not really doing comedy anymore. Mm-hmm. He's he's like a full time architect. architect yep. Like the funniest architect that there is. <laughs> yes. It has to be. He's like the funniest person I know. Aaron Jackson, <laughs> um, Tracy Wigfield. Yeah. Who am I missing? I'm missing Nate Dern himself, Juven Parang, who I think was the head writer of The Daily Show <laughs> at that time. The right. team was nuts. I know I'm leaving somebody else off of that team. Um, but, 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 but whatever. Anyway, I've been on that team for a long time, up until quarantine, basically. Yeah. Um, and then I got good on that team. That's like when I became, like I learned how to be good then. What do you, what do you mean by I, that? Well, I had been on teams often where like half the people were still kind of bad. Mm-hmm. So a thing that I learned to do in comedy was like, oh, I know how to fix this. I know how to fix this bad thing. Mm-hmm. This thing is bad. I can fix it. Mm-hmm. But then I didn't know how to just be good. I knew how to like make sense of your problem, but I would then do my scene and it would also have a problem in it. But once I started doing scenes with people who were all good and it was like, Oh, that skill that I learned is now useless. Now it's like, Oh, I have to be good. I have to, I have to like to tread water with these people. I have to be good. And I was also doing improv with Gethard more than with you. We we were on a team Mm -hmm. um, with Connor Ratliff with like people who I respected and loved who I thought were great. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it elevated my, my game comedically. Right. And so it, it was a big switch to, you know, like what I did for love, you know, this is such an improv centric is every episode of this. Do you only improvise, uh, interview improvisers? Will people have to look up like the improv resource center to know any of the references on this? Maybe. I don't know. Um, the, like what I did for love won cage match its first year. Yep. Like right around that time, Sabonis won the three on three. And it was like, oh, okay, I'm on teams that are like, I'm kind of good at this. Mm-hmm. And, and I had wanted so badly, and this is probably a very normal thing for people at UCB or any place. I wanted so badly to be like someone who had earned respect in that place. Like that's right. what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then, you you know, I got there and was having the time of my life with like great people and still do, you know, up until UCB ceased function in New York to whatever mm-hmm. extent. Right. Tons of fun with my friends, but then you're like, okay, well, I'm actually, what I have done now is become like, you know, I'm on the football team at this high school, but Mm -hmm. at some point you, you got to graduate. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'd I'd focused so much on being on the best improv team. I'm like doing ASCAT on Mm -hmm. winning the three on three. Yeah. And then to finally get all that stuff and then be like, wait, this is like, I walk, I, I walk a block from here and I tell somebody I'm going to UCB and they're like, what's that? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, right. I've been spending all my time like getting good at Animal Crossing. I haven't done anything. I think I had a very similar path with that and the very similar goals. Like I had goals of like, I want to win the three on three tournament and I want to win cage match and I want to, you know, put together my team and have them. It was all about like, yeah, the respect and winning and getting like the, 
I guess accolades or just like that. Like val- that validation of all the that, time and yeah. money you've spent doing this thing. Right. But, but when you get that stuff, um, it feels great. And then it's a real big, like, where do I go from here kind of thing? And that's, a, I think, a good problem to have. And a lot of people would be like, go fuck yourself for having that problem. But I was very yeah, I- diligent in being like, these are the things I want. I worked very hard to get them. I fucked up a bunch along the way. We're very similar. Like, we can be very silly. We can do characters. We can do straight man. But we were really learning as we were doing that. And then when I got put on the Stepfathers, it was the same exact thing. I was like, oh, shit. I know how to f- fix some scenes. And I know how to initiate and maybe, you know, have my scene go bad because I fucked it up somehow or my scene partner fucked it up or we both fucked it up. Um, But like playing with people that are consistently like on it is such a overwhelmingly like I it was the same. It was a very similar feeling to like that first Harold practice for me where I was like, oh, I'm not good. Nope. No, 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 no. I was I'm not good. I was never good. I don't know how the fuck I got here. Um, Totally. And I think part of it is that it's like the inverse a little bit of the need to fail, which is like, uh, be careful what you wish for, which is like, you get all this, it's like you get all this stuff. And then it's like, okay, well now, like I've been seeking this validation from this particular source. And what I've been getting is pieces of it, you know, bit by bit, I've been getting that validation. So then I'm like, Ooh, give me more of this. But the source that I'm getting it from ultimately can't reward me in the way that I ultimately want to be rewarded. Right. So I think like, you look at people who didn't get on Herald teams, who didn't, um, didn't, you know, and they're like sort of, sort of legendary at this point, at least at UCB, like Alana Glazer, Abby Jacobson, yeah. Donald Glover, all these people where it's like, what if instead of being rejected and being forced to, def- to find their voices on their own, what if those people had been put on, Harold Knight. And look, those are undeniable people. I'm yes. not saying that like if they've been put on Harold Knight that they would all be, I don't know, whatever, uh, street buskers now or something. <laughs> but there is something to someone being like the thing that you want the most, I'm not giving it to you. Yeah. That a, a certain kind of person can take that and go, okay, then I'm going to go get it someplace else. I don't know that I'm that kind of person. If I had not ever gotten on Harold Knight, I would probably be you know i probably would have like gone to law school by now like i don't think i would have adapted to right try to continue following a trajectory in comedy so you like when you were going through it all it wasn't like i want to be on saturday night live i it was like i want to win three on three it was like very ucb centric right the validation was very ucb centric yeah gotcha never once thought about like being on saturday night live or stand up or having a stand-up set or any like it was the furthest thing from my mind yeah I don't remember you ever talking about it, you know, when we were, it was always confusing to me because your characters were so great. I thought there was this, there was this like being your peer and performing with you so much from my point of view, it was like, this dude is so smart, so fucking funny, can do it all, like has so much. And it seems like he's up against himself so much. And like, there's a big like judgmental factor there. Like you were judging yourself, you were judging others. And it was like, it felt like it was like holding you back from like, from doing more dreaming bigger in a way. Do you know what I mean? Cause you were so focused yeah, on like getting the thing in front of you and there was less of a bigger picture. That's very possibly correct. I just like, mm. wasn't, I didn't, I just didn't think about that stuff. Like, I, yeah. I, to me, it was like, I was looking at people in the community. I'm looking at like, you know, um, Lennon, um, Chris Gethard, Anthony King, 
whoever, all these people who were age-wise, my contemporaries are maybe even younger than me, yeah. but at the theater who were had come had been like the vanguard before me. They were yeah. like just one generation ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want those people to think that I'm funny. And right. that's like, that's like, that wasn't the only thing that kept me going at it, but it like, that was like the thing I liked doing comedy, but like the thing I was chasing at the end was the validation from these people to be yeah. like, you are, you are like us. Yeah. You know but once I mean? you get the validation, once you get that, then it's like, great, that's over. Like people yeah, like you me. get it and you're like, Oh wow. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then also like from a lot of those people and some of it is probably just, um, abject kindness, but it's like, no, bro, we, we, I've, I thought you were funny. You, you've been, you've been funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so and you weren't so, even putting, that's, that's the other thing. Like, I felt like you weren't, I remember you like auditioning for, um, what was it? Godspell or something like that during oh, yeah. some of this, but uh-huh. it felt like you weren't necessarily putting yourself out there, uh, professionally as well, much. I didn't even really, I didn't really know how to do that. So yeah, I like, right. I would get auditions for musicals, um, every once in a while, because like people in that world still knew me. So if there was ever like, like um, UCB, Eliza Skinner used to run a show at UCB called The Beatdown, which is like a freestyle rap show. Yep. And for whatever reason, I was good at that, so I won it all the time. You sure did. So people that I knew from musical land mm-hmm. also would keep up with me on Facebook and knew that I was good at that, at the rapping stuff. So then I would get called, I got, like got called in for Hamilton or whatever, or like mm-hmm. you know the guy who directed Godspell, who's a friend of mine. Um, you know, it was like uh, yeah, the guy who directed Godspell. Um, wanted to have improvisation be like a major part of Godspell. So that's why he was like, okay, well I know Michael's been doing this. So even though mm-hmm. he's kind of out of the world, maybe he'd come back yeah. and take a look at it. So I auditioned for Godspell, I auditioned for Hamilton ever like once a year, I would have a musical theater audition, but it wasn't from me knowing how to get those things. Cause I really didn't. It was from somebody in the world knowing me. You know what I mean? I do. And like it, I had and no representation at that time. I was just like free floating not even really trying to get that again, still like chasing the validation of people I respected at UCB. It, it makes sense to me because especially when you have a family that, that takes up so much time and energy and you, so you have that and you also have a job that's taking up a lot of your time as well. Yeah. And so it's like, you don't have a, a lot of room for the like, and, and I want to be on Saturday night lot. you know, like it's, right. it makes sense to me that your, your kind of goals at UCB was like, I want to get so good that people notice me, you know? And that, I think that's a great goal. It's just when you're, when you're so attached to the validation part, it, it can be empty when you get it. It's like, a it doesn't mean as much as you think it's going to mean, or it does mean the world, but then it's like, you're staring. It's like, you just ran a marathon and it's like, someone's like, no, 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 you're running an ultra marathon. You got like five more marathons yes. to run. And you're like, no, no, yes. no, 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 no. I just did the marathon though. And they're like, I know, drink water, take a shit, keep running. And you're like, what? No, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But it is, it's, that's, I think that's really right. It's like that sensation of getting to the finish line. But it's, for me, it's like you arrive at the finish line. They're like, oh, this wasn't, this wasn't the finish line. It's, you already did this metaphor. What am I doing? Um, (laughs) That, but that's, that, that rings true to me. Like, I believe, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so then. And now I'm just telling like a story. I don't know what, what is this podcast about failing? I'm, I'm smoking a pipe, man. And listening, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I'm just rocking um, in my rocking chair. Listening to you, baby. I'm trying to think of other stuff like failure stuff along the way. I remember doing ASCAT for, 
at some point I did ASCAT with, um, with Amy, I was booking ASCAT with, I was booking like monologists for ASCAT mm-hmm. with Catherine Budon, mm-hmm. very funny human being yep. who was also on Dreadnought. The best. Um, also just a wonderful person. Yep. And we had booked Gloria Steinem to be the monologist. Holy shit. I think this was the same ASCAT. And I was just like backstage and I think because I was backstage and Amy knew that I did improv, she just assumed I was part of the cast of the show <laughs> and just put me in the show. And it was either that one or a previous one, but I did ask out with Amy like two or three times. Uh-huh. Um, and every time, first of all, I think it was an accident. Like I like she didn't, like she didn't assemble the cast. She just saw who was there and was like, I guess this is it. And I wasn't going to correct her. Yeah. So like, I mean, other failure times, I remember feeling like I was on Herald night again for the first time doing ASCAT with Amy. Cause I was like, please let her think that I'm good. And so as a result, I was horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember like her stepping out into a scene with me and I, you know, again, I could have completely made this up, but feeling like a total deer in headlights and having the <laughs> yeah. energy from her. That's like, mm-hmm. bro, I'm going to handle this. Like I'm, I'm going to make you as good as you want to be. And if not, I'm, I'll, I'll do the whole scene on my own, whatever yeah. you need. Yeah. And so that's what ended up happening. It would be like, you know, this, the scene is me just like trying to randomly make a quip while Amy does something masterful yeah. and the crowd erupts in applause at, while at the same time looking at me being like, why is he in this show? <laughs> or at least like, that's how it felt. And you know, I was bad. I remember those, I remember those things. This is like, I was still on Harold at the time. You know, I was, I was terrible. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember, I think it was, yeah, it was like, the, it was like New Year's day and there was like a secret improv jam that i remember being extremely hungover um and i think i like woke up at noon at laura's place and we had i think we had just started going out and and i was about to go back to jersey and gether texted me was like yo you got to come to this jam amy's gonna be here and i was like all right i guess i gotta do an improv jam now and like my brain wasn't working and it was like put your you know put your name in a bucket and like i remember my group is like I was in the first group. So Amy was playing Michael O'Brien was there. He was playing in this group and I I was on Harold night. I think at this point and I was like, Oh fuck, there were some really good people. You were you at this? I was so the suggestion I will never forget was lexicon. Now Donnie Finelli doesn't know has heard the word (laughs) has heard the word. Okay. But uh, vaguely know what it is. No one's stepping out. Michael O'Brien steps out. No one steps out with him. So he initiates and says something like, look at all these lexicons, something like that. Very funny. He clearly doesn't totally know what it is either or does and is just kind of making fun of the suggestion. I, ste- I No one's stepping out. I step out and just was like, yeah, they're big, man. Something like that. No laughter. Like clearly I'm panicking. I'm so bad in the scene with him. He, I love him so much. I think he's so funny. I'm tanking a deer in headlights. Amy steps in, like Amy tags in or something, tags me out, just makes the scene amazing. And I was like, great. This is the first time I'm playing in front of Amy Poehler. And uh, <laughs> I'm very, very bad. And that's, I keep going back to these moments where I'm like, I am not good at this. Like, <laughs> I don't think I'm a good improviser. <laughs> like I can't, yeah. I can't hold my own with these people. <laughs> I think that's just that's just a natural thing to do, especially with people that you have so much respect for. Yeah, it's but just it's like, oh, deer in headlights is such a perfect 
perfect way to put it. Thank you so much for saying. Yeah, that. you're you're welcome, man. Great job, just great job on that. Yeah, and then I'm trying to think of like what happened in my. I was doing it. I was doing improv forever. Well, yeah, I mean, you, then, we were we were doing we were we kept doing Sabonis and stuff like that. Then I moved away, and it felt like you started slowly going towards stand up because maybe you were getting mentorship from Gethard on that, or it just felt like honestly, you were you were going there because it felt like a, a the next path. The the real story of what happened there is that. I was doing improv with what I did for love. And after the show. Um, oh, I do know this story. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> friend or somebody. I'm, I'm, this is not exactly right. But I think like a college friend was at the show or <laughs> if it was, she wasn't the show. Anyway, she she approached me and was like, hey, listen, would you ever want to do stand up in New Jersey? Yeah. For like the Contemporary Women's Club of Hohokus, New Jersey, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I no, I don't do stand up. I'll like if you give me the details, I'll find out. I'll get somebody to do it. Yeah. I know a bunch of stand ups. And she was like, okay, well, the deal is it's like 10, maybe 15 minutes, and it's 1500 bucks. And I was like, you mean, wait, did you say stand up like stand up comedy? Because yeah, I do do that. That I do. I didn't know. I didn't realize. I didn't know what you had said. Because like maybe, you know. So that's how I started doing stand-up. I was like, right. oh, I can make $1,500 in 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this absolutely yeah, for after sure. after doing improv for free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and earn back all the money I've spent doing improv in the last five years in this one spot. How'd that go? And honestly, it went amazing. Because yeah, all, I I did was, all I did was tell stories about my kids. And like I got there, yeah. and it was like basically a hundred Romney voters um, in like this really nice area in New Jersey. They were all super nice, lightly drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they laughed a lot uh, and they were, I loved it. I had a really good time and I was able to like work out my material a bunch Mm -hmm. at Gentrify, which was a show at the UCB East at the time run by Justin Tyler, who's now Mm -hmm. in Jesus and Marrow and Brandon Scott Jones, who's Mm -hmm. now on everything, Mm -hmm. um, Alden Ford. And Mm -hmm. um, so I I was able to work out the stuff there, like to figure out what was funny. And then like that was my home base doing stand up for a while. So I did that. um, So you did write that down. That wasn't like off the cuff. Like you just went in there. It was not. By the time I did it, it was the I think I did it twice before I did it for money. Um, but it was like, you know, anybody who has kids, if you're a, a semi-compelling storyteller, you are ready to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <I> re- <laughs> like, just this, write down. I, I saw you recently. Listening. I saw you recently out here before all this shit happened. And I, I, I came to one of your sets and it was great. It was yeah. very funny. You were like, I'm going to work some stuff right. out. And and uh, it was, I remember you after being like, you should do this, man. I'm like, no. And, and you saying something very similar. Like, if you have kids and you can storytell. You probably can be somewhat of a stand-up. Like at least you can get up there. And yeah, if you're people. listening to this right now and you have children <laughs> and you're like, could I be a stand-up? Just look at your kid, write down everything that idiot does all day. That's a set. Whatever that is that your kid did today, even if your kid's 40, whatever they did today, that is a stand-up set. Yeah. Um, how, how are you balancing being a parent through all of this? Was there times where you're like, I truly can't do this anymore because it does feel like a waste of time. I mean, yeah, I guess you quit Harold Knight, but like, how are the, how the fuck are you doing all of that? Uh, I mean, it's hard. And I, working, um, right? So you're still doing the tutoring and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I do that lightly now. Like, I'm doing it very much less than I did when I first when I first started working. Uh, when I first started doing improv, 
I was tutoring a lot. Like mm-hmm. I was tutoring, you know, every day, multiple students per day. And now I'm tutoring like, you know, a kid here and there. Um, and, uh, the question was, Oh, balancing with, with being a parent. Yeah. Um, it's, well, I mean, the answer to that is that it's really hard. The, the good <laughs> thing about comedy is that a lot of the shows I do, I do after my kids are asleep. Yeah. So right. like in terms of the parenting stuff, that stuff isn't so hard. It's a little annoying to have to find babysitters for that all the time. Yeah. Cause my wife up until recently, my wife is a nurse. Yeah. So she was working nights. So I would have to get a babysitter while my wife, like, I mean, yeah. the, the difference in contribution to society between me and my wife is <laughs> tragically great. Like she's out there literally in hospitals, saving the lives of children while I'm like, Ugh, babe, I got to get a babysitter. Cause I'm trying to work out this joke about like, what if, what if a pterodactyl was Chinese or whatever? You know what I mean? <laughs> So, uh, I would have to find babysitters and like the, I'm skipping over a lot, but like the, the, the best part of all of that ever was that I was on Seth Meyers, uh, brag (laughs) in January of January this year. It was like a hundred years ago. Yeah. But I was able to bring my kids to that. And they've all heard me say many times, like, you know, I can't, I, you know, I can't be here to put you to bed tonight because I'm going to go do a show. So to take them to Seth Meyers and be like, I'm going to do a show. Do you guys want to come? Yeah. Is really like the ultimate gaslighting of your children so that they'll <laughs> think that when you say you're going to do a show, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, this is where I go. You know, I'm like yeah. every night, every I'm, night. I'm, every I'm night. at it's Seth Meyers doing a show. Yeah. Every night, just me and Seth kind of, kind of cracking jokes. Yeah. When in fact, I'm usually, at like uh you know a bar that's been foreclosed with yeah. two people who've passed out while I'm working out my pterodactyl material. I guess it's also like how old the kids are too cuz like right now I can't imagine doing anything at night because my eyes burn by the end of the day. Uh <laughs> so it's like I feel like when your kids start getting older a little bit it's a little bit easier to find some sort of maybe energy. I don't know though. Like you have to find yeah. energy at the end of the day to then be creative or work out your craft. And I think that's difficult, but see, like honestly, for me, it's really rarely like that. It's mm. more like I am a certain way with my kids and my family, but like the extrovert part of me needs, I need to be out there doing it like a little bit here and there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see. So it's not like I have a, it's not like I have a reserve of energy where it's like, Oh, my energy is depleted. I can't go do that. It's more like that thing where kids are like, I'm full, but I can still eat dessert. Yeah. It's like that kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> no, this babe, this is the other stomach. It's not that one. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the performing one. I guess we and all, all lot, have that. Yeah. There's, there's that second wind in, in us. Um, maybe I'm just weak, Mike. Maybe I'm just weak. <laughs> you might just be frail. <laughs> How was he uh, working, like, working um, up to it though? Like working up to Seth Meyers. Was that, um, uh, I mean, it was, what was that experience was, like for you? So like there's, I mean, part of it, first of all, like doing stand up on the reg on a regular basis has a, was when you have kids, yeah. uh, and a wife, a lot of that is like having a partner who can like, who can help you frame that for your kids. Cause like, right. You know, you, you and Laura like understand each other basically mm-hmm. in terms of like what your careers are. Right. Uh, my wife was an actress when we met, but now she has like a job job that is like real. You know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. So it, it would be very easy for me to go do comedy and have her sit at dinner with my kids and be like, yeah, well, your dad sucks. That's why he's not here. <laughs> yeah. 
But I think <laughs> instead, I'm lucky to have someone who's like, you know, he's doing something that matters to him and, yeah. you know, that brings joy into the world or whatever complete and total bullshit she sells to <laughs> them. <laughs> but like, so my kids don't view it as having like as abandonment but rather as like something that i do for me and for us yeah. so it's cool to work on material that is about my family like what going to seth the jokes that i did on seth are about my kids it's like yeah. me making mm -hmm. fun of my kids a lot mm -hmm. and that's the thing we do in the house all the time like someone you know whatever. i've been there like we say <laughs> we say i hate you in our house like as yeah. a it's like affectionate it's like mm -hmm. a thing you say when you love somebody yeah. or like, I'm going to kill you or whatever. <laughs> it's like, a, we're like a house where the, the term, um, we roast, we roast each other a lot, a lot of yeah. roasting, a lot of razzing. Those, yeah. those are words that get used in the house. Uh -huh. <laughs> so for me to work on that material and then do it on Seth, like they know that even though I'm roasting them on Seth, like the language that we speak in our house is one that's like, when you're doing this, it means like, this is a, a sign is love. of love. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so anyway. Otherwise, I mean, or a therapist will uncover the exact opposite of this uh, in a few years. Yeah. Um, Were you shitting your pants yeah, I mean, a little bit? Like, how'd you prepare for the actual for moment? Yeah. Oh, I was terrified. But I got there. I mean, you know, we've skipped over kind of a, a, a lot of stuff in the middle there. But I, you know, I got through doing stand up a lot as much as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, I got my name out there a little bit. I did a showcase at UCB that Shannon O'Neill put me on mm -hmm. and I got a new manager, um, who really like changed like my whole career such as it is, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like, um, pointed and, you, pointed you in the right direction with stand up and stuff like that. Open doors. Yeah. And was also just like someone who believed in me, but more than believed in me, like had studied me and was like, I have seen what you do. Mm -hmm. I know what you are good at. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're trying to do certain things to the degree that you should be trying, because I think if you tried to do them, they would pay off. Mm. And she was totally right. Like I yeah. wasn't putting myself out there. Um, and like when I would put myself out there, a thing that I would do all the time is I would couch everything and like okay this is a rough draft so it's probably gonna suck or yeah i would like give everything excuses ahead of time i would yes right i don't know if that's self-sabotage or not i was like undermining myself yeah defense and mechanism was, you wanted to be perfect you exactly, wanted to show people exactly. how good you were because you know how good you are you know what i mean that's the thing it's like once you've put once you put really good stuff out there every now and then or consistently you have a standard that you set for yourself so when it when you're working stuff out which is like how you get good at things, you still have a defense mechanism to be like, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. Please don't judge me. That's I'm exactly better than right. this. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's like, it's like, this is a thing that I also used to do that I think is a good analogy for this. It's like when you uh, use a urinal and some of the pee splashes back on your, on your pants yeah. that you then go to the sink and you take the water and you just pour the water on your pants to be like, Oh, I got a bunch of water in my pants. <laughs> is that an analogy for this? It's not. It has I don't know what do the fuck it. you're talking about, man. Why did I say that? What anyway, are that's you the talking thing I used about? To do. Listen, if you're like a tween and you're still having problems with that, yeah. dump the whole water on yourself and be like, it came from the sink. It's not the pee pee. It's not the pee pee. <laughs> um, Although I think the but, pee pee would dry faster. It probably would. It probably would. I could have just, you know, I could have used the hand dryer. But then what if you walk in on me using the hand dryer on my groin? That's not good. Yeah, that's true. Um, Great analogy but, either way. Yeah, all of that. That was worthwhile. Definitely keep that in. The um, She, like, she was like, you should do characters and try and uh, put, a, put a reel together for SNL. And yeah. so I was doing that when I was kind of half-assing the whole thing. And she came to my house 
one day to work on the characters. Oh, wow. Like she came over to my house and worked on the characters with me, which is very different from any experience I had with representation before that. Yeah. And made them good. She made them good. They were okay. And then they were good. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I, I um, showcased for SNL. I tested for SNL. I interviewed. I didn't get the job, which was a bummer because I really felt like I had done great. And I really want, oh man, I wanted to get it. Wait, 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 um, wait, 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 wait. You interviewed for SNL? Yeah, I, I showcased uh, this last go round when they hired, uh, well, they up, re-upped, they upped Bo and Yang. Yeah. They hired Shane Gillis and, oh my gosh, the other woman's name is escaping me. Yeah. The impressionist who's like uh-huh. a genius. Yeah. Chloe Feynman. So Chloe yeah, Feynman. They, hired yeah. Bo, they hired Bo and Yang, or they made Bo, he was a writer, they made Bo and cast. They hired Chloe Feynman and they hired Shane Gillis. And I was in like that cohort. They also hired Dan Lakata, who interviewed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they hired other people. I can't think of who off the top of my head. And you were interviewing for, for to be an actor, not not a writer. Yeah, to be to be in the cast. Wow. Um, and um, and like uh, that whole experience was crazy. Like I really. Um, yeah, Mike. Let's Tova, talk about. It. I had no fucking idea that you did this. Yeah, dude. I mean, Tova had Tova's my manager. She's uh-huh. um, amazing. Uh, if you're listening to this, please don't drop me. Um, <laughs> she she. It's like her guidance that got me. I mean, I didn't get it, but mm-hmm. that got me that far. Um, and it just like every step of it, I had been told by people who'd been through the process before that it was like going to be like a real mind fuck or whatever. Yeah. Every part of it was great. Like I, I mean, I can't speak for anybody else's experience, but like right. the showcase, they were like, listen, nobody's going to clap. The room is super dead. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, the room was the livest room I'd ever been in. The, the woman who showcased before me brought too many props. I think she had maybe just like, wasn't an experienced live performer. It yeah. took her literally five minutes to set the stage <laughs> instead of sitting in silence. The crowd like just started a spontaneous sing along during her setup. Hell and yeah. then they quieted down and she did her set. Jesus. Like it was so supportive. My wife and my sister, like uh, it was, I was terrified walk out. I see my wife and my sister sitting there and I'm like, we're going to be okay. Like that's <laughs> like, makes me feel good. And then just like, I can say this now I feel like with all humility because I did not get it. Yeah. I just crushed. Like it just yeah. went great. Yeah. And then I got the call that I was going to test and the test was a similar thing. Everybody's like, I talked to friends of mine who had tested before mm-hmm. who were, you know, like telling me what the setup was going to be. I, some people were like, you know, it's really very difficult psychologically. Yeah. Um, and again, it was awesome. Like I did the thing. I'm in Kate McKinnon's dressing room getting ready to go out. I, I go out and I had that movie moment where that had never had me before really that I can think of where all of a sudden the, everything is dark. All you can hear is your own heartbeat. Yeah. And you're like, will I, will I eat shit right now? Yeah. I turn around, I do the thing. And again, I feel comfortable saying this because I didn't book. <laughs> I went great. Like it just, it went well. Like they, they were clapping and laughing and stuff. Like it just, it went really well. Yeah. And I, I didn't think I was going to get it. I, I interviewed. So then I interview like, I don't know, a week later or something. I go and interview with Lauren Michaels. I, I did not interview with Lauren. I think gotcha. that was like the sign that I wasn't going to, that I wasn't going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I interview with, but pretty much everybody else, some of whom are friends of ours, some of the people I didn't know. Right. But so maybe they were thinking of you bringing you on as like maybe a writer. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But every person I met, I was like, well, this is freaking delightful. Like yeah. everybody is so nice. <laughs> and it really had busted this mythology I had in my mind about 
um, what the process could be like. Sure. I just, I loved every, everyone I met. I was like, oh man, I really hope this person is my lifelong friend. <laughs> and that's like, I know it's like a corny way of thinking of it, but I really, I really like, yeah, I, I everybody. liked everybody so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I knew, pr- I pretty much knew that I didn't get it, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'd gone through all that. Yeah. And I was at a basketball tournament. Another oh, basketball here we go. Thing, Hurting like a yourself. Month later, mm-hmm. or maybe not a month later, less than less time than that. Yeah. And I think one of Shane Gillis's um, people, like uh, either a close friend of his or a manager or re- uh, some rep of some kind was there. And they had known that I had also tested. Uh-huh. And so we struck up a conversation and he was like, yeah, man, well, better luck next time or whatever. And I was like, oh. Oh yeah. Well, you know, like, you know, we'll see how it goes. He's like, no, no, no. Shane got it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. All right. So people, I would then, then people know everybody already knows. And I, and I did not get it. So like mm-hmm. I didn't get hired. They hired Shane, who was someone that I, I didn't, I'd never met him. I mean, I maybe saw him in the hallway at SNL. Yeah. They hired Shane and I was like, this guy, I knew that he was very funny. So that made right. sense to me. I had seen Chloe's Instagram of her doing mm-hmm. impressions. And she's like, I mean, I don't know if you've seen how oh, much yeah. you watch us, yeah. but she's like a freak. I mean, it's yeah. like, she's too good at the stuff. Yeah. And then Bowen, like Bowen is a legend in the making. Like Bowen is yeah. a beyond person. He's like, not, he's more than funny. He's yeah. not just funny. I remember he did like, that character who was, um, I want to say like a Chinese minister of finance or something yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the bit, maybe his first SNL, maybe his first episode on air. Yeah. But he does a thing. He talks about like, how someone the way someone else's act someone else acted was such a performance and i'm yeah. like just the idea of personality as performance like yeah. that's bowen Yang teaching a class to yeah. america right about what it is to be alive yeah. it's beyond like there are people who are funny and the, and people who are you know and people who are smart and it's very uncommon that people bring their intelligence yeah. to their comedy or at least very uncommon that that kind of comedy gets to be seen like nationwide everything bowen does you're like oh i learned about the world in this it yeah. wasn't just funny i'll throw it out there you were you were a super f- smart dude and it felt like sometimes you would shy away from that from your comedy you know what oh I mean? yeah I, th- I think still so to get back to the seth thing yeah i still i have Good an connection inclination bro down- thank you i have an inclination to downplay uh, my, it's like to be self-deprecating to the point of being like a little bit unrealistic. And I'm trying not to do that as much. Mm-hmm. Like even with uh, the stuff that I did on Seth, with, which I'm proud of, but it feels already like a, a skin that I've shed a little bit Yeah. of like, I talk about being Asian. I talk about being Jewish, but in both ways, I'm kind of like shitting on being both of them. I don't <laughs> think I would do that. Like, I, I think like I like, sort of I was doing stand-up for so long being like no one's ever going to see this so who gives a shit what I said <laughs> right. which I think is where I empathize with people who have said some shit like you know on a podcast or whatever where it's yeah. like I, I would never have said that kind of stuff but yeah. I understand being like no one's going to hear this so it yeah. doesn't matter right. and suddenly being on Seth it's like oh I'm talking shit about being Filipino to like <laughs> millions of people right. maybe I jokes that are like filipinos are dope instead you know what i mean <laughs> wouldn't have taken that much work to do that but because i was like, shitting on myself so much i was like well what are other things about me i'm filipino how can i make that bad right. i'm jewish how can i make that bad right and like pretending to be dumb and you see someone like bowen is this po- this is a podcast about bowen right he looks this is a podcast, yes mm-hmm. this, this is the need to be bowen, like, bowen. Mm-hmm. And you're like 
oh, I don't have I don't have to do that. I don't have to sell this stuff short. Right. I can be and it's crazy. I'm like 50 years older than Bowen, but like, <laughs> it's crazy how many of the people that I admire as comedians for whatever their skills are, are much younger than I am. Like when people are like, you know, what kind of career do you want to have? I will invariably name someone who is 20 years old. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, there's um, this something, there's this confidence, there's this kind of no, knowing yourself, you know what I mean? There's that, which is really attractive. I think is just like knowing who you are um, and being confident about that and, and kind of seeing the world through your own lens and being confident about that. And I don't know, like, I don't, it's, that's their persona too. Right. And that's their talent. I don't know what's going on inside. Um, I'm sure there's demons and all that good stuff, but you know, it's, there's something, yeah, about yeah, being, yeah. There's, there's something about being younger though, that when we were both younger, like we took big swings, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yep. things mattered a little bit less, like opportunities, your, the dream, you know, dreams were, I was just taking huge swings being like, well, I don't fucking know. You know what I mean? Your, your responsibilities yeah. are less. You have a lot more time to kind of like think about yourself, be a little bit more selfish and all that stuff. So there's something beautiful about that age, I think. Agree. I agree. Oh, but you know what? Something beautiful about this age too, baby. I think so, man. You know I mean? Something beautiful about this, about this age too. I mean, like I, uh, I look at where I am now, you know, and it's like, it's moving along and I've got like, you know, uh, an hour that I'm working on and mm -hmm. a pilot that I'm writing, blah, blah, blah. And you know, all those things are very, they could amount to nothing. Yeah. But I have just come into a place. It took me longer than it takes a lot of people whom I admire. I've just come into a place where it's like, I feel like good about where I got. Like I, I think I have the, my family, my marriage, my career. Like, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I, screwing my kids every, every single day, <laughs> every day I disappoint slash berate my children. It happens every day. You know what I mean? Like my wife and I argue, we, all that stuff happens. But I mean, I, in, like from a helicopter perspective, looking down on it, yeah. I think I have it kind of where it's going the way I want it to go. Yeah. And that's attributed to, uh, you know, a lot of things, mostly to my wife and like my relationship with her. And then, but also like to my kids who are like kind of, I mean, amazing. I, I don't know how I kind of like quarantine. I have a lot of friends who are like, have it. My kids are, it's a nightmare. The schooling is impossible. I mean, you know, again, that's support from their teachers and all that stuff, but my kids have been great and it just kind of has worked out. And I've, you know, my manager has been amazing. My family just in general, I just like, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm privileged to have so many like different kinds of support. Because I I need that. I, I, otherwise, I'll default back into like just being funny for a few people and never taking any risk or like trying anything. Well, when Laura and I were trying to figure out like what kind of parents we would be, you guys were the first people we thought of just because and you'd yeah. probably be like, you'd say something self-deprecating right now. But it was also like we were with you and your family um, and we saw how you guys interacted with each other and we saw your kind of parenting style. And we're like, we like this attitude, this kind of like what you brought to the table, uh, with your kids. And I know it's a, maybe a uncomfortable to talk about, but I was always wondering when you, if you do go through some shit, uh, because you've had a, a, a huge tragedy in your life with yeah. Fisher, like, does, 
does, do things seem less, uh, I guess, precious or important? That's like, a great question. So like, are you going out for, be- you know what I mean? With SNL, it's like, well, nothing's going to be as bad as what the fuck I feel and I'm feeling to this day. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, but you're listening to this podcast, what Donna just, I guess, decided to just jump the fuck into <laughs> is uh, talking about my dead son, which is crazy. Uh, but yeah, so I have a son <laughs> My, my oldest son had a twin named Fisher and the twin died. Um, and that like that, like that whole thing, it's really weird, man. Like, uh, it's a thing where you, um, if, if I were looking at somebody else's life and that happened to them, which is how it felt for a long time. Like I was watching a movie of myself that was happening in real time. Yeah. Um, you would expect, I think that thing of like, well, you know, I, I've had, I've suffered like an insane loss. So everything is different. Yeah. And I think again, like on a macro level, things are different and like, you're able to put things in perspective. And I think I see people maybe with, for whatever reason, more kindness than other people might. Like I see, like I see the, whoever that person is on Twitter, that's getting destroyed for doing something freaking terrible today. Yeah. I think I see that person in a different perspective because I know what it's like to have, like, I just imagine those people and maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but it's, it's like their worst day. And if you saw me on my worst day during that time, it's, it was not, uh, those weren't good days. Right. Uh, but the, when you ask about like, do things feel different? Like, honestly, I think I'm just as petty and full of bullshit <laughs> as I was. And there is when you're like, like after he, died where you're like every single thing I do from here going forward will be a monument to my son. Right. And then oh, you know what? I spent all day playing Super Smash Brothers. Like <laughs> I don't think wherever he is now, I think he like looked at his dad and was like, fuck yeah, dad. You figured out to do the, the final smash with little Bowser or whatever. <laughs> you know, so like there is there is a pressure that no one else put on me that I put on myself to make every moment like to make make it f- like completely and totally full. Yeah. But I fail to do that a lot. I think like if I were it's giving impossible myself to do that. Ad- yes, that's right. I think if I were giving myself advice, it would be like, Hey, like do that. When you have, when you're like feeling bored, you don't have to be bored. Like, like fill your life with something you can, yeah. but I fail to do that. I mean, so, so much. I- I'm, I'm no better at being like, let me just scroll through Netflix for 45 minutes before being like, eh, I'm just going to go to bed than I was before this happened. You know, what got you to the point of saying, cause it, it, I'm going back on that time and correct me if I'm wrong. There was this kind of famous, I guess, uh, dreadnought set in a sushi restaurant, but you weren't there that day. And I That's think, right. I think it's the day that Fisher passed away. I think, Oh, you know, I don't know if it was that day, but it was definitely near then. Where like I, I thought, uh, I remember you, it was at least the moment where we knew shit was going down, and you had updated us on his condition. And I remember my memory is horrible, but uh, so let me continue with this story. Then um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing that show. I remember Mudon not being too happy just because it was. She was just like, that was too fucking crazy. And, and for whatever reason, a couple of us were like, that was bad. And maybe Jesse was super pumped, something like that. We all went to like, um, McManus after and, or Jesse and Noah and I did. And then I remember driving home 
I remember being like, man, that was a bad show. <laughs> like that was, that was too crazy. And then getting a, an email from you on the ride home. So I was looking at my phone while I was at a, probably a red light, let's say. And I remember just starting to cry. I mean, I just started to really ball. I want to make this about me. This is what I'm trying to do. I want people <laughs> to feel bad about how I had a bad improv show. And then I got a horrible email from you. No, but I, I th- that is my memory of being like, oh God, we missed Mike tonight. But Mike is going through something so much bigger <laughs> than what the fuck we just did. And well, yeah, I, I'm I mean, saying like, all this to be like, I don't know if we were... I think we reached out to you and we're trying to be supportive to you. No, you guys were great. Everybody, everybody, every single I don't know if we were enough, though. That's that's where I, I, I'm no, sorry if we weren't like, enough. What if I was like, that's why I did this podcast to scream at you. <laughs> no, everybody, everybody was exactly as much as they knew how to be. And like everybody was great. Everybody yeah. really was. Like, There's not a single person who did something during that time where I was like, well, I'm never going to forgive that. <laughs> everybody was like real. Everybody was really nice. But it, it was like in that time, like, you know, um, the day that he died, there's definitely like, you know, a, an earthquake that happens then where it's like, OK, well, now everything is just this. There is yeah. no there is no improv. There is no like, you know, there's no comedy world. It's yeah. just me and my wife and our family. Right. Um, and, you know, gradually like the you like add other pieces back in. You're like, okay, well now I feel like I can see this person. I can see this person. I can talk to these people and the world gets just like you collect all the people back up again. Right. Um, but your but, tweet, I mean, your, your tweet said that you want to talk about it all the time now and you didn't realize that. Um, is it something that you were just like, was it people coming to you with the, like you didn't want to deal with making other people feel good about it in a sense. I feel like that's a lot with grief is like, you sometimes feel like you need to comfort the other person or make them feel comfortable. I mean, I think that's totally true. I think that happens a lot where like something bad happens to you and like everybody else is crying and you're like, okay, well let me handle all these people. Yeah. Right. Right. That first. But it's more that like, I just didn't know how to talk about that. I didn't know. Yeah. I was like so worried about it which I think is what other people say would say about talking about it with me too. They were, would mm-hmm. be like, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to make him think about it. I don't want to. That's what I know, was thinking. That he wants to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think for me, and it's been 10 years, right? So I don't know that I would, you know, if you have a friend or something, or something really tragic happened to you yesterday, I don't know that I would approach them the same way, but yeah. with 10 years distance, I like talking about it. Like it makes me feel good. I don't only want to talk about it, but it's like a (laughs) thing where it's like a thing that uh, it's a thing that I am way more open about now. And it makes me feel good to be open. Yeah. Um, What was the switch? What happened? I don't know. You know, when it happened, everybody that I knew pretty much knew about it. Yeah. Right. So like there's that, I guess it's like also meeting new people now it's weird to know people who don't know that about me. It's right. weird to have people be like, you know, uh, oh, you have kids. How many kids do you have? And be like, well, I have two kids, which is what I've been saying forever. But I really have three kids, but one of them's dead. It's like, yeah. it's weird to be like, it's weird to not have that other part be known. Yeah, try, so right. I think part of it is that it's like acquiring new friends or like meeting new people of any kind there's this element of me that wants to be like, and there's also Fisher. Like, don't like, you know, like yeah. he's not in the pictures, but he's, there's also, there's another kid that, that, that he's there. Yeah. Right. 
I, I, I appreciate you talking about that stuff. And, uh, um, I'm, I'm happy we got to connect during this fucked up time and I'm happy you got to do the fucking podcast, man. I love you, brother. I miss you. I know, man. I miss you too, dude. I please give my best to the fam. Okay, but do you, but you don't love me? Is that what I'm getting? Just to yeah, be clear? I don't like you. I like your family better than you. It's, okay, yeah, I'm trying fair. to be as you know clear <laughs> as possible. And I guess I'm not. Yes, I don't like you. Got it. Yeah, uh, but thank you for doing this. <laughs> of course, brother. That was Michael Cruz Kane. Check out all things Michael Cruz Kane at michaelcruzkane.com. His stand up set on Seth Meyers is on YouTube, so check that out. He has a podcast about grief coming out from Irony Point. That should drop soon, so be on the lookout for that. You can follow MCK on Twitter at Cruz Kane. You can follow me on Twitter at Don Finelli or at The Need to Fail. Questions, concerns, failure stories of your own, hit me up at The Need to Fail at gmail.com. You can call 657 222 1324. Leave a message with some failing failures or scream into the void. I will play it on this podcast you don't have to donate to the pod anymore on patreon but why not rate and review the show one more time on itunes and stitcher and tell all your family friends about it that's it for me here we got all new failures coming at you next week thanks so much for listening my name is don finelli mahalo your dream This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.